Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, we're back for a Christmas edition of the Leading Your International School podcast. My name is Barry Cooper. I'm the principal here at the Global College in Madrid. And with me, we have someone I've known and started teaching with um, back in 2001 at Epsom College, uh, back in the day, um, this is Sarah Pavey. And I, you do so many different things, Sarah. I do not want to speak for you. So maybe you can just introduce yourself uh, over the next kind of minute and keep it to a minimum because I know you do all sorts of other things as well. So let's, we're, today we're talking about libraries okay thanks very very much for having me on this podcast um really looking forward to sharing my ideas with you and your community um as, my name's sarah pavey i've worked in school libraries for a very long time but 10 years ago i decided to escape from school and set up my own consultancy and training business so i kind of specialize based on my experience with all sorts of different things, as you said, but mostly I'm very interested in the application of technology to school libraries. I'm also really interested in getting people engaged with school libraries because I think libraries are the key to our knowledge. And we've got to be able to take that further when we go into the workplace or whether we go into higher education, it's vital that we know how to access information. A long time ago, when I was at college, somebody said to me when I was doing my master's, they said, at the moment, we are in the stage of IT and it's all about the T. And one day we will be all about the I for information. And I really think that's where we are now. And it's so important that people get a handle on that. That's that's amazing. I think I, we just literally found our soundbite for the uh, for the for the podcast. I think the, <laughs> the information age. I think you, you're absolutely spot on. So when we think about libraries today, I think for for me, when I was growing up, when I was a, a young teacher, libraries were an important place where you went and you learned how to research and you you had books and you it was a resource. You took knowledge away. I mean, what's the importance of libraries today? How how important are they today? And how have they perhaps changed? I think school libraries have changed beyond recognition in some countries. I wouldn't say that this is a global phenomenon, but certainly I think those countries where you're following a curriculum that's perhaps behaviourist in nature so that you're, it's exam-based, there the isn't the sort of exploratory um, inquiry-based learning element there at all. And that's been the case in England, particularly for since 2012, when coursework was removed from the curriculum. Now, in those kinds of situations, I think what's happened is that libraries have very much become down the route of reading for pleasure. They're places where students can come. They have a library lesson where you would just sit and read books for the entire lesson which I think is important because I think some children need that space because they're not going to get it anywhere else and it's a good way of slowing down. However, what's happened is it's had a big impact on the library profession because people are saying, well, perhaps you don't need um, a qualified librarian to sit there and listen to children read. It could be anybody. And I think that's what's happened. There's been a certainly a, a deprofessionalization from that point of view. I think the converse is true in those libraries that are inquiry-based, where you're following something like the International Baccalaureate or a similar qualification where there's significant um, input in terms of exploration, holistic approach to learning. And I think in those situations, the librarian, the qualified librarian, has been absolutely vital because they're the people who know about the handling of information. We've got the background just the same 
learners. If you're a history teacher, you learn about history, or if you're a science teacher, you learn about science. The librarian learns about information. And I think both um, have a very valued um, role to play in the school. I think the crucial part comes when you go to higher education, particularly, not perhaps so much in the workplace, because in higher education, the curriculum tends to be practical. It tends to be inquiry-based. And if you've got your great A stars from your A-levels or whatever, you go to university, you suddenly find, oh, actually, I've not got a very good grade for my essay because I've approached it in the wrong way. And that can be quite devastating for some high-flying young people. And I think as a school, we've got a duty to show them and to make that transition passage easier for them. And I think that starts right at the very beginning from the earliest years of education, not killing the curiosity, but actually developing it and encouraging people to find out about the world around them. What better than the library? Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I still remember my, my public library when I was a boy. And they had a, a reference section, which was always the door was always shut, and you approached it in hushed tones. But once I ended up going inside, it it opened up a whole new world. And you introduced to this, you know, it was an eight year old introduced to this idea of an encyclopedia. I was like, well, what's that? You can find anything. I was like, amazing. So this is what we had before the internet. Um, but the, I mean, we we, we do a lot with I mean, obviously I work internationally, and this is you know leading your international school. When we come to international communities, which you know, are are not necessarily you know overseas, but are communities of people who are from everywhere. So especially you know, British boarding schools, I would say, are very international. You know, international schools um, in in major cities. What what kind of library does an international school need to make sure it brings everyone together in the way that you're describing? I've worked with a lot of international schools. I had the privilege of working um, with a school which um, almost the entire sixth form was actually European and, and Far East based. So I've had quite a lot of experience on that. I also do a lot of work with um, a company in Dubai called Infinite Learning, who uh, again have got a global reach and I do a lot of online training for them. So I think that international schools are absolutely wonderful because that diversity of culture brings all different sorts of opinions on different um, news articles that you might be discussing in a class. The whole sort of attitude to learning is a blend. Um, another um, international job I did um, a couple of years ago now was actually looking at a prep school. It was based in London, but they had a large Japanese intake because um, they had a Japanese school next door. And as a result, I had to delve into the whole way in which the Japanese education system works in order to explain why the students were coming from the angle that they were in the British classroom. So there's all kinds of different aspects on that. I love the fact that most of um, the international um, schools I've worked with do not follow a behaviourist curriculum. They follow an inquiry based curriculum and uh, that for a librarian is pure joy, I think, um, because librarians are recognised. Even I go quite regularly to France. When I go to France and I say I am a bibliothecaire, I get sort of treated as royalty, whereas in this country I probably wouldn't. So I do think it's it's really, really important that, uh, that the role is recognised. And I think international schools do a fabulous job on that. And 
if you look at the international baccalaureate um regulations and and um, uh, guidance they do say that it's important to have a qualified librarian on your staff if you're I would, go above, I would go above and beyond that it's actually a it's a criteria if you haven't got yeah. a librarian you cannot have an ib accreditation no and i, I, and I know this very well having gone through the ib accreditation so yeah, yeah i yeah. know absolutely you you talked you talked a lot about um Kind of the, the role of a, of a librarian how can we kind of better define that or better kind of explain it i'm a big fan of metaphors and at the moment yeah i think in in the past the librarian was someone who said Shh, a lot but i think <laughs> it, it's it's also so a guardian of the environment and a guardian of the knowledge that was there but do you see it slightly different now is the librarian now kind of transferred or translated into something more dynamic and, and and moving children through that process and maybe a teacher of you know research and learning and thinking skills i do i think that what we should be aiming for is exactly what the international baccalaureate sets out which is whereby we should be looking at digital media and information literacy and critical thinking and encompassing and trying to um, understand how we can put equality and diversity into all the lessons that we teach. And a bit like, I think it's a little bit like IT in that um, we don't sort of, you tend to teach computing now rather than IT because IT is assumed that it will be integrated throughout the curriculum. And I think with um, information, that's, that's exactly the approach we should be taking because Teaching it in silos is not really going to work. And talking of metaphors, quite often the librarian, I think, is described as being a little bit like a Victorian governess or nanny. You're not quite upstairs, but you're not quite downstairs either. You're somewhere in the middle and you get moved according to what suits best at the particular time for the particular circumstance. And I think in certain countries such as france the uh, a librarian will do a first degree i did a first degree it was in biochemistry nothing to do with literature or anything like that and then to do a master's and in france their master's is the same for librarians as it would be for a teacher doing a pgce so basically they are doing that same PGCE but within the realm of information and I do think now that information is so critical that that's something we need to consider I think it's a policy. So with that in mind then how would we go about I mean yeah I'm putting you on the spot now but how would you go about <laughs> creating you know, a great library where does it start does it start with the environment in which the students are does it start with the kind of place it is and the curriculum that you have do you have to start with the curriculum before you even think about the library do you have to start with the librarian and their personality where what's the starting point and how do you how do you then for people who may be starting an international school how do you then layer that and create something that is fit for purpose and you know amazing for the students who are going to be the the, the users and the face-to-face -face users well, I think, you know, there's obviously this, the, the curriculum is key because there's no point in building an inquiry-based library if you're not going to do that as part of your of your curriculum remit. So, so that at the, at the beginning probably solves it. If you're doing a more inquiry-based or maybe you're looking at lower years where the curriculum isn't so defined, you might um, be looking at something a little bit more fluid. 
And I do think that the important person is the librarian because so many things now are actually digitally available. So the space, in a way, isn't really that relevant unless you're looking for a study space as well. But if you're looking to build the competencies in information handling, in critical thinking, in deciding whether something is academically, in, 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 has got integrity, if, you, if you're looking for those things, that's something which I think needs to be built up from the earliest age. And I do think that a library should be a communal space where people can have ideas and where they can use it as their space to grow the things that they want to within that environment. So a few examples. I mean, there's some really wacky things you can do. I mean, in London, they've got a wonderful space called the Unlibrary and people go in there and they just post up sticky notes about things they've read or ideas they've had. And you can just wander in there and stick things on the wall at any time you want. And it's a respected space, which is quite interesting. And certainly in my libraries, I had tried to make a corner where people could actually do that and have ideas. I think things like having maker spaces in libraries are absolutely brilliant. People can come in and tinker with things and do that. I think have the responsibility on the librarian is not just supporting the curriculum but furthering the wider environment as well so developing you know don't just slap a poster up but have a poster that's interactive where people can either answer questions on it or take it further you can have little things for the youngest ones like thunks which are things where you say if i had a million if i borrowed a million pounds would that make me a millionaire that's a really good question, isn't it? Mary's thinking about that one. Yeah. So there's all sorts of things you can do that are creative. I've also wrote a book during lockdown on game-based learning in the library, but in all sorts of different environments. It's called Playing Games in the School Library. And um, the thing is, it tries to expand. It's, it was a book with case studies from all over the world, and I gathered them and learned a lot about the international libraries that are out there and what people are doing, the creativity that's in there. And I think that's a big role for a library. I think we, we've got to move away from it just being a room where we curate books into something that's a living, dynamic space. That's amazing. I, it almost sounds like you could you could take this to you're taking this to the nth degree, and you could say, well, you know, we we don't have a physical library at all. You know, every you know, the school is the library. And this is how we how we approach information. This is how we approach learning, um, and just distribute books across the school, distribute learning across the school. I mean, when when it comes to, I think probably I, I know from from my role as a, as a school principal, one of the biggest issues that we're facing at the moment is how do we use things like AI and new you know digital tools that that allow students to. Um, well, uh, look at their work in slightly different ways. Um, and one of the things I found with, you know, chat GTP, for example, is it's used as a research tool, which is interesting. Um, but it, it's only interesting so far, because once you start digging into it as an expert in a particular field, I can immediately start to spot, well, hang on, there are some errors here. There are some, or this is actually quite kind of, it's not very substantial. It's quite top level rather than anything you know, really specific. What are the, what do you think are the biggest problems when it comes to the current state of AI and how that will develop our use of information and how we then become information users in the future? 
I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I have to say I am a bit of a fan of AI, but I'll, I'll explain why in, in a bit. Um, one of the things, I think the challenge of AI is the attitude towards it. And again, I would praise the International Baccalaureate because I think they are not saying that let's just pretend it doesn't exist, let's embrace it and let's work with it in the best way. And I'm currently trying to persuade them that a reflective sort of article, the old reflective couple of paragraphs at the end of an extended essay on how you used AI to shape your essay might be quite a good idea. Rather than trying to reference something that you can't reference because it changes all the time. It's, it's, I, it's I had exactly this conversation with my team yesterday about referencing <laughs> and talk, referencing AI. How do you do it? Uh, it's, no, it's pointless. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And likewise, the checking for AI is equally pointless because they don't really work because you know, and people who've written something normally get accused. So AI, we have to learn about it, I think. And um, one of the courses that I teach is actually on AI use. I think it's really important because it's not just about chat GPT. There are lots of other ones out there which are really, really useful. Others now, are available. I feel like we should be like yes, the BBC. We should. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that we can do is, I think you've raised a really important point there, Barry, and that is that we're dealing with young people. They have not got the experience that we've got as adults. They don't know the subjects in the same way because they're exploring them. They're new. And the problem is if you haven't got that background knowledge, you can't really discern whether something is being truthful or whether it's not without doing a lot more research on it. So the way in which I see AI is to make sure you're using the right tool to begin with. One of my favorite AI tools for actually doing essays is one called Ask Pi, P-I. Now, Ask Pi is wonderful because it never actually gives you the answer. It just asks you questions. So if you say, I'm thinking of doing a, um, a, a, a an extended essay on Gothic literature, it will come back and say, Oh, that's really interesting. That's a lovely topic. Well done. But do you think you need to make it a bit more specific? If you did, what do you think you'd come up with? And so you've got to answer it. And then it says, well, that's quite good. So if we were taking women in Gothic literature, perhaps um, we should start by doing this. Do you think that's a good idea? And then you, the person has to answer. And even if you're asking about referencing, it will say, well, what kind of referencing style do you want? But it never actually gets around to producing the essay for you. It just encourages your critical thinking. Yeah. If you want something a bit more um, sort of standard than, than ChatGPT, I would recommend Ask Claude, which is really good because Claude AI actually makes the chats out, out all the sort of waffle that ChatGPT has. And then you've got wonderful tools like Elicit. And Elicit actually allows you to compare academic papers and it gives you praises of them so that you can decide which ones you want to use in your essay and which ones you don't. Now, I don't see that as cheating. I think that is using information responsibly. And I think it also reduces cognitive load. So it means you've got more time to spend in crafting your own essay. And so rather than being a sort of creator from, you know, from base, you become an editor and you start looking at it. And I think that's the way we're going to go. Now, in order for that to work, I have to say that assessment has to change. Because if we continue 
assessing just on bland, you know, have you put that phrase in, have you used those words and so on, then that's where um, AI will cheat. If we start asking about the critical thinking and the implications of what we're discovering for the future, standing on the shoulders of giants to further our research pool, then I think AI really comes into its own because we allow people more time to think creatively. So how do we how do we do that then? How do we is this a case of starting when you know the kids are five, six, seven, and and creating this new kind of generation X almost who are you know part, they're yeah because at the moment this is what you know I, I mean I am generation X as, as are you but yeah you know, it's it's you know one foot in the analog one foot in the digital but is this a new kind of generation X where we have students who are sixteen seventeen who are just getting used to this and are now one foot in the in a library space, in a in a book space, in a JSTOR space, and one foot in a in an AI space. Do we have to help them through it and then start from scratch with very young students, or is there a different approach to to creating that new approach to information? I'd, I'd love there to be a different approach to information, but I think at the moment we are fairly well rooted in tradition, and I don't think that until that changes we can go any further and it's not fair to probably encourage 16 and 17 year olds and say oh look is an AI wonderful if then the assessment says uh-uh you're not allowed to use it so yeah. and I think uh, to give you an example of this I mean it's a different scenario really but um my daughter um went to prep school and um she was they had to do this the SATs which are the exams that you take at 11th. And her little group of um, uh, classmates, they were all there doing practice sats. And one of the questions was, the girl in the yellow swimming costume went for a swim in the blue sea. And then the question was, what colour was the girl's swimming costume, the girl in the sea's swimming costume? And they all wrote green, because yellow and blue make green. But that was not the answer that was required. It was yellow. And so, and so they had to unlearn what the way in which they were thinking at that level, they had to unlearn it in order to pass the assessment test. And this is the danger that I think we are in, that we, we can't, um, all these lovely things that we would love to do, and I, I mean, as a librarian, this has been a frustration, I think, in school libraries all my life. The things that you would love to do, you can't because, you know, if you're a busy teacher and you've got to get through these steps to give these children the qualification they need for the next stage of their education, are you really going to be spending time on something which they're not going to be able to use to get that qualification? I suppose that that that's where you come for reading for joy and and you know exploration for for pure interest. I mean, I remember as a as a, a boy, um, you know, I had lots. I grew up in East London, so I had lots of uh, friends who spoke Punjabi or spoke Hindi. And so I went to the library and I said, yeah, precocious nine-year-old asking for book tapes on on how to learn Punjabi, which I got. Um, uh, but the it, it, for 
we're actually coming up to an interesting time of year as well when it's you know i always think of this as a yeah i think in iceland they have this great thing don't they have book night where people gift each other (laughs) books and you just spend the evening reading i mean is is do we need to be thinking about different ways of of encouraging then kind of reading at home reading over these christmas this christmas break should we you know in international book night kind of push to try and get people (laughs) thinking about this in in these terms I think I think the um the closest you, you have is the Harry Potter book night and things like that, which they yeah. they do do in things, and it's been a bit commercialised. But there are things there. But yes, I think so. And I also think that one of the most successful things uh, that a school can do is the involvement of parents. And I do think having sort of a book um events whereby children can come with their parents maybe choosing a book for their parents i mean used to have lads and dads evenings and things like that in some schools and it's you know i think it's really important that there are role models because so often these days you know people are just looking at their screens or something like that and the trouble with that is that they can't see what you're reading you are reading probably whether it's your latest Facebook post but you're still reading yeah I mean that's quite good but is it reading for information or reading to escape and that's that's the the issue really what we're talking about because I think that reading I mean we know from the science of reading that it has a huge impact on people's brain function that it can um, certainly make you more responsive to other things that are around you it can help I mean, even as a scientist, I mean, I have to confess that although I'm a school librarian, I'm not the greatest reader of fiction, I have to say. But um, and all my children used to laugh at me about that. And I say, well, come and tell me what you've read and then maybe I'll get to know your stories. And they they used to do that. But I but I do think that um, even with that, reading a fiction book as a scientist helped me with the vocabulary. It put it in context for me so that I could understand how it was used. And once I had that understanding that it was of real value, then I felt I could read the fiction book. I have to say, I still prefer what I call faction, where it's a mixture of both. But, but, um, but you know, it did help me to read. And the other really interesting thing about reading, I find, and I don't know whether this relates to other people as well, but actually I find reading on a digital device is much better for me personally because, and this is what's really weird, is that if I have a fiction book, I'm very naughty and I read the first chapter and I read the last chapter and I make up the bit in between. But since I've been reading on the phone, because it's actually only got certain paragraphs, it makes me read the whole thing and I find that really good. That's such an interesting kind of way that technology is, has has made the experience better as well. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Um, in terms of, I mean, thinking about the Christmas break coming up, I'm not going to ask you to pick the twelve books of Christmas, although I mean that could be quite fun if we did. Um, but um, I mean, what what's your what what for as a kind of as someone who is in the know? I mean, what what are one? How can people be encouraging reading over Christmas for 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 their youngsters if you're listening with youngsters, or even if you're students and principals and teachers are listening? And two, have you got any recommendations? Have you got any things that you've kind of come across on your travels, working with different libraries and different schools, and thought, oh, hang on, and taken a mental note and thought, I must tell someone about that. That there are so many books out there that are being published all the time, and I think with reading, everybody's got their own take on what what makes them interested in it. 
Um, I think for Christmas, give your child a book for Christmas. That's the first thing to do. And I would say, you know, one of the things I've learned from working in the international market is that um, the picture books don't have to have an age barrier on them. I think picture books are wonderful because they encourage discussion. They encourage thinking about the things that you can find in them that maybe you missed the first time. You can go back. You can read together as a family. And I think they're wonderful. And one of the um, uh, jobs I've been working on over the last couple of years is um, a project for Erasmus, the European um, research um, uh, people. And we've been looking at picture books um, in terms of critical thinking and diversity and equality. And we've it's called bridge.infolit.eu. Um, .info um, and it's it's going to be a free database with lots and lots of ideas for um, different picture books that you could use. It's in six different languages for the different countries that are involved. And in Spain, we've even got it in Spanish and Catalan and I think something else as well. So it's, you know, it really is that diverse. Um, it's also got a few free databases as well in it. So it's going to be great. It's going to be um, coming out very soon. It should be finished as a database in January. But yeah, I've been looking through a few things, things that I really like. I do go for quirky, slightly strange books, I have to say. But one right, of my favorite. <laughs> Well, so one of my favourites is I Do Not Eat Children, which is a, a lovely picture book um, for four to eight year olds. Um, and it's about a monster who appears in a playground and then children start disappearing. But you don't see on each page, first of all, that they are. And then gradually you realise what's happening. So that's really good. But it's four to eight because probably under four, they might be a bit scared. And and if they did get scared by that, that that's um, that's by that one's by I Do Not Eat Children is by Marcus Cutler. So, yeah, so um, have a look out for that. It's going to be published in March. And then also March, a bit later, just in case you did get scared about that, there is We Are the Wibbly, um, which is a younger book, actually, not to five years old. And that's about sort of somebody going, well, tadpole, becoming from frog spawn, becoming to frog. And it says, well, some of the tadpoles might not want to be frogs. So, you know, that's a bit scary. So it's all about yeah, anxiety and things like that as well. Um, I've got got some nice ones for um, slightly older children as well. Um, Soren's Seventh Song, uh, which is by Dave Eggers. Um, he's a well-known author. And it that's all about, because oh, I'm a bit of a musician, and it's all about this humpback whale who wants to invent a new song. But then he, it's all the steps he goes for getting his song accredited by different people and things like that. And it's, you know, it goes through all the things about if you want to create something, the kind of barriers that you might come up against. And... I, I've got, I've got, well, I've got quite a lot here. I've got one of my farms. This is brilliant. I love this one because I'm not very good on dragons and things like that, really. But I thought we ought to have a dragon recommendation. So I've gone for Deborah Meaden Talks Money, which is for 12 to 18 year olds. And that's all about money. I mean, she's a dragon in Dragon's Den. So I thought that would count. So, um, so you know, I'd I, say I'm noticing something here. I'm noticing something. All of the books you're recommending, are, all of them are about how to think. 
is is yeah. this a kind of an un, unconscious yeah. kind of librarian librarian approach to things i think these are brilliant i'm actually i've written down the two titles you said earlier for my kids so yeah. it's uh, i do not eat children <laughs> that one i'm i'm pre-ordering that as soon as we finish this podcast <laughs> yeah. you could dress up as a monster you know <laughs> school principal so, i'm already a monster okay <laughs> so um yeah so I mean there's there's lots of stuff out there I mean yeah I tend to go for books that make you think because I and I I I just find that I'm not very as I said before I'm not really a a complete fiction fan so fiction for me has to do something and uh, I know other people have different ideas and they like to be lost in fantasy but for me, I, I like something, and it's probably because of my science background, I like something that makes me look and discover. And in fact, one of the um, the final um, recommendations I had was um, a really nice one called Big Ideas from Literature, How Books Can Change Your World. Wow. And that is by the School of Life. It's coming out in March. Um, and it's for mostly for nine to 12 year olds, but I think it could be older as well. And it, it's really good because it's about how books help you in terms of your life, how they can. And it introduces lots of well-known characters from literature and shows how they've been used to um, to enhance your not just your thinking, but your approach to life in general and what you do and what's ethical and what isn't. So I really like that one. I think that's a, a nice one which ties it all together. I'm definitely getting a copy of that one. So what's what what's your I mean to ask a librarian what her favorite book is, I think is probably quite cruel. I mean, you know, it's you know, I it you, you it depends exactly as you were saying, it's, it depends what mood you're in, it depends on what you're reading yeah. for. Are you reading for you know calm? Are you reading for pleasure? Are you reading for story? You know, I'm a big fan of Ian M. Banks, for example. I loved his kind of science yeah. fiction work, mm-hmm. actually it was so creative. But I also read, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a, an old duffer, so I read, you know, Stoic philosophy and Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, and these are things that, yeah, if you're <laughs> a quiet moment and you're trying to calm down, reading Seneca's Seneca riling against anger and saying, no, you don't need it anyway, so center yourself. Have you got any books like that where you you kind of go back to them? I mean, Christopher Lee, for example, famously said he read Lord of the Rings every year. Have you got anything that you go back to again and again? I think uh, I think it depends. I mean, I'm somebody who will have different books in different rooms, and I just pick them up according to what I want. I, I, I'm not somebody who sits down necessarily read, but one of the ones I really loved because I am on a bit of an AI kick. And um, a couple of years ago, I read a book called "You Look Like a Thing and I Love You," and it's it's all about the beginnings of AI, where they asked a um, a computer to come up with a chat up line, and that's what it came up with. So that's the title of the book. But it's it's a great book. It's really fun. Um, I think one of my favourite ever reads that I read was the um, a book called "The Heirloom Gang," which is A I R Loom Gang, and it was about these Victorians who lived under the Houses of Parliament and had built this machine called an heirloom which influenced the people talking in the chamber up above and it was based on a true story and um, and one of the MPs 
uh, keeled over and died in the middle of his, of, of his speech. And they attributed it to this, this machine that was under the House of Parliament. And it's a wonderful romp through history. It goes to the Cathars in France. It goes to all these different places. It's, and it, it's all about this man that they put in Bedlam and he kind of, which was the, um, the madhouse in London. And it, it, it's all about how gradually all his predictions came true over a period of time. So then the question was left, well, was he really that mad or was there some substance in this? So brilliant, brilliant thing. For children, I have to say my favourite book is Where the Wild Things Are. I just love that book. It's just got so many undertones to it. And it's just got, every time you read it, you can you can see what's really going on as an adult. <laughs> it's yeah, just, yeah. No. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, I think. I think I think it's possibly the yeah the illustrations are some of the most iconic in, yeah. in literature or any any kind of literature. It's um, Morris yes. Sinek, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. yeah. I've got. I think we have about three or four copies at home because we keep using them and then find them under beds and so buy a new one. Um, um, one one for teachers. I'll just get this one in, which is 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 great. I think if you're trying to be brave and to step outside that curriculum and do something different, there's a great book which is modelled on Dr. Seuss called Diffin Day. And it's presented as a child's book, and it's all about um, this school which is very austere and very kind of um, straight and narrow. And then this teacher arrives who transforms everything and gets the children to explore and do lots of different things and everything else. And then they get an inspection and they're all really worried because this inspection's coming up and they think they haven't learnt the right things for the test. They're never going to pass and everything else. And in the end, all the children pass with flying colours and they get better grades than everybody's ever expected. And it's better such an uplifting book. For teachers, it's like the one. It's that, so I, I shook the computer there. I think anything where we end with better grades is, is a perfect place for, yeah. for us to finish. Sarah, <laughs> um, thank you so much for being online today and, and for talking to us. I think, I mean, I'm absolutely with you. Libraries are a massive uh, part of, I think, every school. And I think as we go forward, I think we should have more conversations about how we change that idea of, uh, of libraries. Um, so uh, thank you very, very much for, for, for being online. Um, any final words before I wrap up? No, but thank you very much for inviting me. Have a lovely Christmas, everybody, and get those books and get reading, but get exploring too. Don't forget all the wonderful digital resources we've got out there as well. Fantastic. So thank you very much for listening again. This is the Leading Your International School podcast. We're brought to you by TIC Recruitment. So they are the one-stop shop for anybody looking for recruitment across the planet. So they operate um, across the world from New Zealand to London. So do check out the website if you're looking for uh, new people for your team or if you are indeed looking for a change and possibly moving into the international sector. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you from me. Thank you from Sarah. And we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.